And so if you haven't been with us recently, this series is an exposition of St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And I've outlined this sermon series with three themes. One, the blessings of Christ. Two, your position in Christ. And three, what it looks like for you and your household to live life in Christ. This follows the literary structure of St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Chapter 1 explains our blessings in Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 describe our position in Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 illustrate what it looks like to live life in Christ. And so far, we've given our attention to the blessings that we have in Christ. Chapter 1 was all about the indicatives of of the gospel, what we have graciously received in Christ, that which God has lavished upon us, nothing that we have earned or worked for, all of the blessings are God's grace. We also considered our position in Christ. First, we analyzed our old position apart from Christ. Paul was very clear at the beginning of chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, totally depraved, suffering from moral inability, dull to the things of God, rebellious and following Satan and deserving God's wrath. Furthermore, in our old state, in our old position, you and I were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was our old position apart from Christ. Then we examined our new position in Christ. But God, God in his mercy made you and me alive. He he raised us up and seated us in heavenly places. Again, not because of anything that we have done to earn this, but simply because God was choosing to be gracious toward us. Also, in our union with Christ, by grace through faith, you and I now have peace with God and with each other. We have been united and reconciled to him and to one another. And we have access, direct access to the Father through the Spirit. This is our new position in Christ. And through this union in Christ, we also share in all the same rights and privileges of God's covenant people, with all the saints and members of the household of God, spanning both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so thus far in our series, this is what we have covered. Chapters 1 through almost the end of 3. Today we will finish chapter 3. Today's sermon will bring a conclusion to Paul's emphasis on the indicatives of the gospel. And it will serve as a pivot before we begin addressing the imperatives of the gospel. Our response to the gospel. How we should live in light of God's blessings and our new position in Christ. And so this morning's sermon title is Paul's Prayer for the Ephesians. And our text is Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 21. And I've summarized these verses in two points. Number one, 
Verses 14 through 19 are Paul's petition. And number two, verses 20 through 21 are Paul's doxology. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. I'm going to read our text and then pray. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Would you bow your head with me as I pray a prayer of illumination? Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate your holy word. Help us to understand Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and its implications for us here at All Saints Church. I pray this by the power of the Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, let's begin looking at Paul's prayer this morning by addressing that first point, Paul's petition. Draw your attention to your Bible in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is Paul's petition. And his petition, his prayer, can be summarized with two points. First, Paul desires for the Ephesians that they would have intellectual knowledge of both Christ and the gospel. And second, Paul's desire expressed here in this petition for the Ephesians is that they would have experiential knowledge of both Christ and the gospel. And so I want to address both of those petitions. So first, his desire for them to have an intellectual understanding of Christ and the gospel. Paul's desire for the Ephesians is that they would have an intellectual knowledge of Christ. This is clearly demonstrated in verse 18. Paul is wanting the believers in Ephesus to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And the reason for this is because knowledge precedes love. 
It has been said many times in many ways throughout history, you cannot love someone if you don't first know them. Knowledge is necessary for love. Also, and more directly related to what Paul is saying here in chapter 3, knowledge precedes faith. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, the Apostle Paul tells us that knowledge about Christ and the gospel are necessary requirements of faith. In principle, faith must be directed toward an object or person. Therefore, knowledge about that object or person is necessary. Thus, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, the gospel must be preached explicitly made clear so that in hearing and knowing faith might be realized and this is why saint paul has written about the indicatives of the gospel up until this point in his epistle he wants the ephesians to intellectually ascertain and comprehend objective truth and doctrine concerning christ and the gospel concerning their blessings and the position they have in Christ. The apostles' petition and desire is that the Ephesians would explore and know great theological truth. However, that is not his only desire, nor is it his sole purpose in writing. With an intellectual knowledge, Paul desired the Ephesians to have an experiential knowledge of the gospel and of Christ. So this is point number two. And this is seen in verses 17 and 19. St. Paul states that he wants his audience in Ephesus to have Christ dwell in their hearts. And he desires that they would be filled with the fullness of of God. This is beyond just an intellectual assent or intellectual knowledge or just a knowing of information about Christ. Paul is desiring that they would know Christ in the sense that he is dwelling in them. And he wants them to have an experiential knowledge in that they are filled with the fullness of God. There is a significant difference between knowing about something or someone and knowing someone or something. For example, you can know about pizza. You can know the origin and historical development of pizza. You can know which ingredients go into a pie. More so, you might even have a recipe from a famous chef memorized. But... Until you walk into a pizzeria and eat a slice for yourself, your knowledge of facts and information about pizza is limited. To experience the smell, the texture, the temperature, the taste of a slice is much fuller knowledge than just knowing how pizza was invented or how to make Pizza, or even have certain information about pizza memorized. So in general, you can know all the objective truth and facts about something, 
and still lack a full knowledge of that subject. And the same is true of people and relationships. Prior to marrying your spouse, you knew a lot about them, what their tastes and preferences were, where they grew up, where they went to school, the size of their family and their order of birth. You most likely had special knowledge about their hopes and dreams and aspirations and perhaps even fears. However, it wasn't until your wedding night that you knew your spouse fully as you experienced their love embodied and demonstrated. And if you aren't married, this truth is not lost on you. Just think, there is a great difference between being able to recite facts about someone and being able to say, I've met that person. I've interacted with them. I've had meaningful conversation. Likewise, everyone here is aware that there is a huge difference between knowing what the Bible says about being kind-hearted toward one another and receiving a bowl of chicken noodle soup and homemade bread when you are sick and not feeling well. There's a stark contrast between knowing what to do and how to do it and actually doing it. And we can do all sorts of examples of that. R.C. Sproul cleverly said this, you can have knowledge of Christ and not have saving faith, but you can't have saving faith without the knowledge of Christ. And that is what St. Paul is really getting at here in our text. The threshold between intellectually knowing about Christ and experiencing Christ is faith. The threshold between intellectually knowing about Christ and experiencing Christ is faith. Here at the end of chapter 3, knowing that intellectual assent is necessary and rightfully understanding objective truth and doctrine is essential, Paul wants the Ephesians to know about Christ and the gospel. That's clear. But more importantly, Paul wants the Ephesians to experience Christ and the gospel. He wants them to experience saving faith. He is not satisfied with them just knowing the blessings or knowing their position in Christ. He actually wants them to move from intellectual knowledge over to experiential knowledge. And because Paul knows that faith is the gift of God, as he has already stated in Ephesians chapter 2, he is therefore petitioning the Father, the Heavenly Father, from whom all life, all families, and genealogies proceed from. And he is petitioning the Father on behalf of the Ephesians, praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith and that they would be filled with all the fullness of God by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in them. This is Paul's prayer. 
These are his petitions. Dear saints, you need to know that the session of this church has the same desire for you. What Paul desired for the Ephesians, we also want for All Saints Church. In the early planning stages of this sermon series, as a session, we, we prayed that you would not only have intellectual knowledge about Christ and the gospel, but we also prayed that you would experience the gospel by grace through faith. First, we pray that you would know objective truth, particularly these facts, this objective truth. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, being the second person of the eternal and triune Godhead, Jesus the Son took on human flesh and became the God-man. He lived a sinless life for you and me, procuring real righteousness for us, through his obedience to God, the Father. Jesus then suffered and died on the cross in our place. As our substitute, he stood under the justice of God, the Father, absorbed his wrath, and paid the penalty you and I deserved for our sin in our rebellion. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again in bodily form, defeating sin, Satan, and death so that we too will one day rise from the dead like him unto eternal life to be with the triune God in heaven. Jesus was seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses and then ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, reigning and ruling as the Father has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. These are the facts about the gospel. And we pray that you would know them and love them. That you would have the intellectual knowledge about the gospel and what Christ has done for you. But, more importantly, we pray that your knowledge about the gospel would lead you to an experience of the gospel. That Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. We pray that you personally would experience the blessings of being in Christ, along with being positioned in him. We pray that you would experientially know that your acceptance with God is a means of Christ's work on your behalf and nothing of your own doing. Furthermore, we pray that you would experientially know that your significance within the church has nothing to do with your performance but everything to do with Christ's position. All of this we prayed for you and continue to do so. That is Paul's petition and our petition. That is point number one. Now, let's look at point number two, Paul's doxology. Draw your attention to verses 20 and 21. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. 
Amen. The word doxology simply means an expression of praise to God. And that is ultimately what is happening here at the end of Paul's prayer. And we've already seen this take place in chapter 1. When Paul engaged with the truth of the gospel, he was led to spontaneous worship. And this spontaneous worship is not only the effects of the indicatives of the gospel, but it is also the premise for the imperatives of the gospel. So I'll say that again. Worship, and particularly Paul's spontaneous worship, is not only the effects of the indicatives of the gospel, of realizing what Christ has done for us, that leads us to worship, but it is also the premise for the imperatives of the gospel. It's why we respond to the gospel. So, for example, you and I are to live in obedience to God. Not because it earns our acceptance or justification, but because God is worthy of our obedience. He is worthy of our daily and practical worship. Worship is our reason, our means, the why we obey. We might think of worship as something that we only do on Sunday morning, or only with song, or maybe just with liturgical elements. However, the Bible is clear. All of life is worship. In fact, in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Every activity we engage in is ultimately tied to worship and the glory of God. Often you may hear Reformed Christians talk about or refer to Coram Deo, which means to live before the face of God. And this concept of living before the face of God is biblically illustrated in Numbers chapter 2. Following God's deliverance of his people from the hand of Pharaoh out of Egypt... The text tells us that 12 tribes were to encamp around the tabernacle, the place where God's presence dwelt in a particular way. The people were not allowed to set up their camp just any certain way that they wanted. Instead, they had to follow God's prescribed placement of their tents. Ultimately, God's formation of the camp placed his tabernacle at the center and three tribes camped on every side facing inward. And this created the ultimate sense of Coram Deo. As the children played in and around the camp, they played in the very presence of God. When a man went into his tent with his new bride to procreate. This was done before the very eyes of God. When women cleaned and cooked and changed soiled linens and washed clothes, they did so in the presence of Jehovah. 
as people fasted and feasted, as they mourned and rejoiced, as they leisured and labored, all of this was conducted in the presence of God. And because all of these daily activities were done in the shadow of the tabernacle, in the presence of God, all of life was seen as worship. Also, a realization of God's presence among his people brought to light the gravity of their sin. When a child disobeyed his father or mother, he did so in the face of God. If someone lied or cheated, they lied and cheated in front of the tabernacle, the dwelling place of the Most High. If a man abused or raped a woman, his sin was done quorum Deo, before the face of God. But the key to, to understanding all of this is that the people were not living life as worship in order to earn God's favor. They already had that. God had communicated that and demonstrated that in the Exodus. He loved them and set his affection on them, not because of anything they had done, but because of his covenant faithfulness. And so living life as worship was not a means to earn anything with God. Instead, they worshiped God on a daily basis through their ordinary activities and vocation simply because God was worthy of their worship and obedience. And this concept of living in the presence of God is powerful. And it's what Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 are all about. The tabernacle in the wilderness prefigured the temple in Jerusalem. And the physical temple in Jerusalem prefigured the spiritual temple that Paul wrote about in chapter 2 and 3. The universal church which we are a part of through our union with Christ. As God's people of the past lived in his presence with the tabernacle and the temple, how much more do you and I live life in the presence of God who dwells in us through Christ? How much more should our lives be seen as worship as we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit? This is what chapters 4 and 6 are all about living life in Christ as worship for the glory of God, not as a means of earning our acceptance with God, but simply because God is worthy of our worship. And all of this, chapters 4 through 6, and this concept of life as worship, all of this springboards from Paul's spontaneous doxology here in verse 21, when he says this, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This morning I pray that you have understood Paul's petition. That he desired the Ephesians to have an intellectual understanding of Christ 
as well as an experiential understanding of Christ. I also pray that you have heard how the elders and pastors of this church are praying for you. Like the Apostle Paul, we are praying that you would have the intellectual knowledge of the gospel, but even more so, the experiential knowledge of Christ dwelling in your hearts by grace through faith. We are also praying that this would lead to a comfort and a security of your position in Christ, that you would not have to strive to earn God's favor or strive with your brothers and sisters in this church, but that you could rest secure knowing that Christ has made you significant within the body of Christ. Also, I pray that your hearts and minds would be moved in the coming weeks by the indicatives of the gospel. Moved to then the imperatives. Likewise, I pray that worship would be the lens with which you view your activities and vocation. As we continue this exposition of St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesian Christians, I pray that you would see God as worthy of your obedience and worship. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you bow your head with me as we bring our prayers and petitions to the Heavenly Father? God, we come before you recognizing our neediness. We are needy people. We don't have it all figured out. We don't have all the answers. We are not sovereign. We are not omnipotent. We are not omniscient. We are not omnipresent. But we recognize you are all those things. And so as your dearly loved children, we come to you this morning needy and aware of our neediness, praying and asking that you would hear us and deliver us Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. 